In the 1970s, a future top-notch podcasting team was born, and then raised on military bases because their dads were in the Air Force. These Gen Xers eventually grew up and were unleashed upon the world. Today, looking forward to retirement, they survive by dishing out their opinions. If you have questions that need answers and an open mind, if you can spare 60 minutes a week, and if you have internet access, maybe you can listen to Kenyatta and Jack Save the World. Hello, Fems, Fellows, and everyone in between. If you're here, you know where you are. You know why you're here. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Save the World. He is Jack. I'm Kenyatta. This is us. Hi, Jack. Hello, Kenyatta. How are you today? I mean, I know, but how are you? I'm well. I'm well. You? I'm doing all right. Doing all right. Considering the Saturday I had <laughs> last week. Go figure. Go figure. Go figure. <laughs> but you're feeling better. I am feeling better. I I do believe that the the kidney stone is no longer in my body, which is good. Yeah. 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 The funniest thing, though, about that was I was when I was in the ER with that bad boy was I sort of took a picture, but it didn't show which one of us was there. And I sent it to several people and I said, who's in the ER, Heather or me? And every single person said, what has Heather done now? So I didn't is- say it just like that. <laughs> I said it in the, I said it in the form of a question. Like, is it possibly her? <laughs> so it well, right. Way. Everybody, no, though, was no, like, sorry. <laughs> not one person thought it was me, <laughs> which I find funny, but it was me. Oh, my. Mm-mm-mm. But <sighs> through, the, through the miracle of modern science, you are better. I am better, yes. Heather knew that I must be feeling incredibly, incredibly bad when about 45 minutes before the OU football game was about to start, I walked into the living room and said, you have to take me to the emergency room. I can't take it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and she's like, wow, if you're going to miss the game, no, we need to go. <laughs> it's time to go. It's time to go. But uh, it's it's good that you're feeling better. So well, thank you. I appreciate yay that. Yay for that. Yay for that. Of yep. course. Who else would I do the show with? Jeez. I know. Any It'd other be... name wouldn't it wouldn't roll off the tongue good. I know. It'd be Kenyatta and substitute save the world. I mean, what is that? I know. What is that even? I know. Oh boy. Any hoot. <laughs> uh we're gonna keep it chugging along and roll right into our oh, before we do that, it is October listening friends. And it is uh, Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So please, uh, no matter what you identify as, check yourself on a monthly basis. Take yourself to the doctor if you notice anything strange. It's not a game. Also, October is Fire Prevention Month. Yes. Jack, is there anything that you would like to chime in on that? Make sure you have fire extinguishers in your kitchen. If you live in a two-story house, get an emergency window escape ladder. Um, You do not want to. It's the one thing that you never want to use ever. Mm -hmm. But if you need it, you need it. And uh, Mm -hmm. the other thing, if you have kids, 
discuss your fire escape plan and don't be afraid to get up at three o'clock in the morning and turn your fire alarm on and test them because it only takes a second and you do not want to be burned. I can assure you. Absolutely. Because I had a battery go out on one of my smoke alarms and I replaced it. And wouldn't you know, three on a different one. Hooray. (laughs) That's how it always works. It is how it works. I keep nine volt batteries for that reason. So (sighs) make sure you stay protected and you have a plan. Absolutely. So having said that now, we can now move on to WTFs. Jack, what do you have this week? All right. I have this one that I just think is incredibly funny um, because I'm WTFing the Republican Party uh, internal civil war that they're going through. And I just find it funny Mm. because there's this whole group of people that are the anti-freedom caucus that are now going on TV and they keep saying in every interview that Gates and the other members of the Freedom Caucus are not true conservatives, which I find funny because that's (laughs) kind of the whole, you know, Trump thing. They're not really Republicans. And Mm -hmm. I'm just like, wow, you guys can't even come up with something more original than they're not true conservatives. I mean, they're not, they're authoritarians. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That may be what they're trying to get at, but they they don't use they don't know how to use their big words. Right, right. So they're just they're not true conservatives. <laughs> I mean, they're correct, but I'm just finding this whole war in the Republican Party to be hilarious because literally we have now seen since 2016 the first twice impeached president, and now we have the first kicked out of office speaker of the house for a first time. You know, mm-hmm. what else are we going to be seeing here in the near future with these group of people that's the first? It's going to be an all-out brawl. Yeah. That's what it is. It's, it's going to be a melee in chambers. <laughs> that's what's going to happen. Yeah. We've already had people call it. We've already had people call each other names. Yeah. That's happened. So this yep. it's going to, and then there's going to be a, there's going to be a slap fight. And I don't mean between two ladies. Right. And then there's actually going to be a fight. <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, my God. I, you just reminded me of this. Uh, I guess it. What do you call things that are on the former Twitter tweets? I I don't. X's. X marks the spots. I don't I know. People I don't, that don't even bother. They don't they don't bother calling it by the new name. They just still call it Twitter. They refuse. Yeah. Just call them it, tweets. Just call them tweets. It was just really funny because uh, my favorite represent, well, one of my favorite, uh, Jamie Raskin was talking with another one, uh, another congressman after they kicked out uh, McCarthy. And um, the other guy says to Raskin, he said, wow, um, it's too bad they couldn't keep George Santos as the Speaker of the House. This wouldn't have happened. And so they both started laughing about it. And as they were laughing, George Santos came out and the guy actually said it to him, man, do you think this would have happened when you were speaker of the house? And he's like, and apparently George Santos response was something along the lines of, yeah, this craziness is why I'm glad I no longer have that job. (laughs) Dude literally is like, 
leaning into it. And if Santos thinks this is crazy, (laughs) Santos (laughs) thinks this is wild. Okay. We're all in trouble. We're in trouble. Right. When, when George (laughs) Santos is the, the serious dude in the room, your party has problems. That's like, that's like Satan coming up and he sees somebody doing something dirty and he's so appalled. He's like, okay, that guy's evil. Right? You know you're in trouble. You know you're in trouble. <laughs> yeah. It's like um, there was literally a guy in World War II that was a Nazi that um, even Hitler thought was extreme. Hmm. Or what did they... What do they call John Wick in the first John Wick movie? He's the boogeyman's boogeyman. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. George Santos is the bullshitter's bullshitter. (laughs) He's the bullshitter. Other bullshitters aspire to be. I mean, he should definitely teach classes. I imagine. I imagine he's going to. He's going to find a way to make that work. Right. He should just go ahead and say, hey, make me speaker. You can't do any worse. I mean, because your boy thinks he's going to be speaker. Right? Mm, I mean, he said it. (laughs) Yeah. So it has to be true. Oh, I want this nightmare to end. This is just like a waking nightmare for this entire country. It is. It is. But yeah, that whole Santos thing had me cracking up. But yeah, that's just it. My WTF is just this war within the Republican Party that's going on with this whole speaker thing. And it, I'm like, hmm, McCarthy, maybe you shouldn't have, I don't know, put your eggs in the basket with those nut jobs because everyone sort of said he's going to re- come to regret this in the future. And oh, well, look at that. They were mm-hmm. all right. Yeah. He didn't even make it a year. He didn't even make it till the end of the year. Yeah. Hmm. Maybe he should have done the stuff they were. Don't have any friends, right? Yeah. Maybe when there was talk of kicking all of those people that wanted the pardons from Trump from their January sixth activities, you know, when they said, "Hey, maybe we should maybe kick them out of Congress." Maybe you should have done that then, and you'd still be Speaker. Uh oh. That's what happens when you don't hold people accountable. They're going to keep going and keep going because they think they can get away with it because you basically told them they could. Yep. Okay. He is he is definitely in the find out phase. <laughs> oh, he's such a putz. I wonder what he's doing right now. <laughs> Crying. What do you this this is my existential moment? When you think about things like this happening, it's wild to think that while you we're sitting here doing this, those people are somewhere else doing something. Like, what are they doing right now? This man was humiliated again. Yeah. What is he doing right now? He's in the fetal position in the shower with his clothes on with warm water (laughs) running on him while he's crying and a bottle of (laughs) a half, you know, not even the glass of wine. He's drinking it straight out of the out of the box. He's not even he's not even at a point where he can. (laughs) Yeah, he's not even at a point where he's got a bottle of wine. It is boxed wine. Mm. Anyway, (laughs) you just tipped it on its side. Just. Oh, man. All right. (sighs) So sad. All right. So mine is tangentially related. You'll find out in a minute. 
straight from the Washington Post, whose byline they've had for the last few years amuses me. Democracy dies in darkness. I love it. Anyway, the headline reads, federal court halts private grant program for black female entrepreneurs. A panel of federal appellate judges on Saturday, just this past Saturday, temporarily blocked an Atlanta-based venture firm from awarding $20,000 grants to black female entrepreneurs, writing that the program was, quote, racially exclusionary and, quote, substantially likely to violate a federal law prohibiting racial discrimination in contracting. The temporary injunction issued by a panel... mm, the temporary injunction issued by a panel on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit the 11th Circuit, prevents the private Fearless Fund, that's the name of the venture capital company, from closing its application window. Basically, what it is, is they had, they were, um, they had a contest going that they were going to award $20,000 grants to businesses owned by Black female entrepreneurs. And... Someone, and I'm getting ready to tell you who that someone is, came along and said, "Uh uh-uh, that's racist. The company won its first uh, trial, and then it got appealed up to the appellate level. And they was like, nah, you have to keep the application window open, and you have to consider other people besides Black women. Hmm. The plaintiff is the American Alliance for Equal Rights. Led by David Dukes, activist Edward Blum. That was close. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, okay. Yeah, (laughs) this is the same guy that was responsible for the lawsuit that made it all the way up to the Supreme Court that pretty much shot a hole through affirmative action a few months ago. Right, yeah, yeah. This this guy's on the warpath. He's not kidding. No. He's not kidding. He is not. And this lawsuit against this uh, venture capital firm, uh, the plaintiffs include some white folks and some Asian people. Just like the lawsuit involving Harvard and UNC. This is you know. once again, once again, an effort to try to pit one minority community against another by saying that this company, which is trying to focus on funding black women entrepreneurs is being racist because they won't consider other races. If only there were some other place a white woman could go to get a grant. Like every other place. Right. Mm. So of course, the Fearless Fund is appealing, and I will be watching this story as it goes along. Yeah. Um, the sad thing is all this money that they're having to spend on legal crap is money that could have been used, you know, for that $20,000 grant. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Not to, in, in addition to this lawsuit, the, uh, the alliance that Bloom leads also sued two law firms alleging that the firm's diversity fellowships for law students discriminated on the basis of race. I'm so disgusted that this man has nothing else to do but shoot holes through opportunities for other people. 
That is all that he is doing. Yeah. By, cl- by claiming that anything that places an emphasis and allows uh, opportunities for people of color is somehow discriminating against people who aren't that color. I know. And he's getting away with it. On, a, on an epic scale. He's, he's getting away with it. Yeah, it's, you know, <laughs> sometimes I feel like I was maybe slightly happier when I was in the dark about certain things. I, I feel the same way sometimes, but I realized that that was the case. One, I wouldn't have much to talk about. Two, the things that we don't know are the very things that are going to come and bite us in the ass eventually. Exactly. Um, no, I'm glad that yeah. there are just times where it's like, oh, God, I wish I did, you know, mm-hmm. this other thing. I'm glad that I have that I know all this and that even I, I know that we don't have, you know, one a super huge audience, but I do feel like our part <laughs> in, in like this small little culture war, even though this is far worse than, you know, culture war. I just feel like even though our small part is there, we're doing something, something. And it does make me feel good that, well, I mean, we do it in, in tandem, obviously, but that I am doing something to try to bring awareness about this stuff to people that if they do listen and they don't know it, might you know, even if they think that can't be true. Well, if they go and look it up, they'll be like, oh, crap, that is true. And mm-hmm. I just, it, it does make me feel good that we're at least doing our part, <laughs> even something. if it's a small part. Yeah, it really does. It really does. I just. And I'd rather be doing this. If this is all I can do, I'd rather be doing this than just sitting in the living room, pissing and moaning. Right. You know, something. But yeah, I I agree. Sometimes I really feel like, I really feel like I could crawl in the shower fully clothed with a box of wine and just curl up and cry. (laughs) I want to do that sometimes. (laughs) I I understand. (laughs) I'm like... And then I, I think about, I can't remember where I, I've, I've probably seen it in a couple of places where they talk about the experiment that is the United States. It's not failing, but it's really, really crippled right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I saw a thing online and it said, I, America's really throwing off. I peaked in high school vibes. Yeah. Speaking of American history, I'm reading a fantastic book, and I say fantastic, and I'm only halfway through the first chapter, so that tells you something. It's called Black AF History, and you know what the AF stands for. I'm going to assume that it means Air Force? Yes. Um, The author is a fellow by the name of Michael Harriet, who I've followed him for years, and he is funny. And when I tell you... That is the perfect mix of historical fact and humor. I'm, I'm, I'm dying laughing. Like every other page, I'm dying laughing because right now I'm in the middle of the chapter where he talks about how the Europeans finally making their way to the shores of, of this great land and mm-hmm. how the slave trade started. Interesting. And this is stuff I didn't know. It literally started with two Portuguese guys. Yeah. Like it blew my mind. I'm 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 enjoying this book. So there's a plug, listening friends. 
Black AF History by Michael Harriet H A R R I O T. Go find I, it. I actually, as you were discussing it right now, I went on my library app and just placed a hold on it. So in a short eight to 12 weeks, I will be able to <laughs> check it out. Yes. Yes. Let me know when you get it. Considering that we literally share a hive mind across 1500 miles, <laughs> I bet you you're going to get like 20 pages in and you'll be like, what the? I'm sure. <laughs> this is amazing. I'm sure. I'm sure. I'm sure. I just finished a book by uh, Ellie Honig. He's a legal correspondent on CNN. Mm -hmm. And um, the book is based, is, it's mostly about William Barr and just how corrupt that dude is. It is totally worth, worth checking out. Um, let's see what. Trying to, I wish my brain was, you know, you capable of like, yeah, I was going to throw the title out there, but you know, whatever. You sent, you sent it to me. Yeah, I think so. Oh, you know what? I think I screenshot it. Duh. Untouchable. Yes. Yes. He has, uh, he also has a, a, another book that came out. Um, it's uh, newer. It's more about Trump, but. Yeah, Ellie Honig is a is a good author. He spent lots of times um, with the Justice Department and just various prosecution. You know, many years as a prosecutor, so he's prosecuted people in mob crime families. So I'm going to say that he knows quite a bit about uh, the legal world, and he's definitely worth uh, checking out. Anyway, good deal. I'm looking forward to my short ten to. Yeah, or whatever, eight to twelve weeks of that book becoming available, and then I will, I will give it a listen. And as soon as I finish it, I'm going to start on the book you recommend. So, listening friends, there you go. There's a couple of book recommendations. So. Yeah. Yep. Yep. All right. Let's. Uh, we we've WTF'd our brains now. <laughs> Almost went off the rails, as sometimes we've been known to do. Mm, oh well but let's get back on those rails and um you have a topic and i am ready to hear it all righty so listening friends if you've been with us for the long haul you know our our show is a potpourri of different things current events political stuff history pop culture sometimes all at once Today, you're getting a little bit of historical pop culture. So, get with me here. You're traveling through another dimension, a dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind, a journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. <laughs> So we're going to talk about that iconic TV series and the history behind it. Cool. Starting with the fella that saw the whole doggone thing. Mm -hmm. A guy by the name of Rodman Edward Serling. I promise you, I did not know his first name was Rodman. I did not either. <laughs> I just always assumed that it was like Rodney. Yeah. That's generally what Rods are. Or Roderick. Or Rodney's. 
Yeah. Yeah. Or, yeah. Rodman was not on my radar at all. At all. At all. He was born December 25th. He was a Christmas baby. 1924 in Bingington, New York. Uh, grew up in a nice Jewish home. He had a brother. His father was a butcher. And unfortunately, during the Great Depression, he had to close his butcher store. But during his childhood, Sterling spent a lot of time reading pulp magazines and putting on plays for his parents because they saw how interested he was in things and he, they encouraged his talents as a performer. So much so that his older brother built a stage in the basement where he put on his plays. And apparently his older brother, who was a, a writer, claimed that at the age of six or seven, Rod used to entertain himself for hours by acting out dialogue from these pulp magazines or from movies that he had seen. And he would often ask questions without waiting for their answers. Now, this part is funny. On an hour trip from Bingington to Syracuse, the rest of the family remained silent to see if Rod would notice their lack of participation. He did not. And he stopped nonstop through the entire car ride. <laughs> That's funny. It is funny. Also cool that his family was that supportive that A, his brother built a stage for him and B, his parents let his brother build a stage for him. Yeah. Elementary school, he was seen as the class clown and, as it is, dismissed by many of his teachers as a lost cause, which is unfortunate to kind of, you know, trying to kind of douse the passion of, of, a, of a kid like that. Because you see, you see he's, he's hyped up about something and it just isn't math. Ugh. Anyway, his seventh grade English teacher encouraged him to enter the school's public speaking extracurriculars. And he joined the debate team in high school and also wrote for the school newspaper. In 1943, he joined the U.S. Army's 11th Airborne Division. Standing at five foot four inches, he barely qualified. But he eventually reached the rank of technician fourth grade. I did not know he was that short. I did not either. I figured he was maybe like my height, like five eight-ish. But dad yeah. gone. He, he always looked taller than me. I guess when you have no one standing next to you or no props or sort of anything, it can give that illusion of height. Fair. Because I, I really, and when, now that I think about it, on those times that he did, you know, his opening monologue or whatever, they would shoot him from like with the waist up because he'd, he'd be holding his cigarette. Yeah. You know, looking like, you know, he could he could just stand to be there. But like you, they never really showed him. They would show him like walking in sometimes, but you never really noticed. Yeah, that, that yeah. he was a he was a petite man. <laughs> That's one way of putting it. But yeah, he was definitely uh, the opposite of Shaquille O'Neal. That is true. That is true. So, um, in November 1944, his division saw combat in the Philippines. And uh, did light infantry during the Battle of Leyte. I don't. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing that. But during his uh, service, he was actually awarded the Purple Heart and the Bronze Star. Oh wow, cool! Yeah, I mean, sucks that he went through what he went through to get them. Right. But I mean, shows you that he definitely had testicular fortitude. That is true. That is true. Um, 
And according to his daughter, when he returned home, he suffered from what used to be called shell shock, which is now more commonly referred to as PTSD, unfortunately. So as a result, he turned to writing, which is something he had always been interested in, as a kind of compulsion, a terrible need for some sort of therapy, according to him. He attended Antioch College on the GI Bill, studying literature, naturally. And after graduating in 1950, he worked as a copywriter and in his spare time managed to play some of his own, quote, melodramatic scripts with popular radio serials. And now this is the 50s, no mm-hmm. TV yet. So, you know, people had radio shows, which is basically what podcasts are. Just yes. fancy radio shows. <laughs> Essentially, yeah. But like in the radio shows that they did back in the day, it was a whole, it was a whole to do. You had people literally voice acting. You had sound effects in the back, things like that. And people wrote scripts for it, just like they write scripts for TV. So that's what he did. And apparently he was pretty good at it. So much so, he won two Emmys for his contributions. And he liked doing the TV work when he started getting submitting scripts to television when it came up. But he was concerned that TV would go the way of radio shows, which by that time had started being for him, I guess, kind of disappointing. And he said they, um, quote, aimed downward and they had become cheap and unbelievable and willingly settled for second best, mainly because so many of the radio shows would incorporate advertisements into them. They they pretty much be selling stuff. Right. So glad that went away. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So he was disappointed with that. And he was hoping TV wouldn't follow (laughs) in its path. Bless his heart. Uh, What he felt like, though, with TV was the was a good place to cultivate literary talent or smart stuff. And he felt like it was a medium like, let's say, a theater production or an orchestra performance that could showcase smart stuff. But it didn't always have to, you know, include somebody hawking something. So years went on and he was he was submitting teleplays and scripts and things like that for shows. And in 1956, he wrote a teleplay for a weekly show that was sponsored by a company called U.S. Steel. The script alluded to the 1955 lynching murder in Mississippi of the black 14 year old Emmett Till at the behest of the sponsor. The script was, quote, Vitated, emasculated, as Sterling remembered, so that all references to racism in the South were generally expunged. Uh, and there's a fellow by the name of Mark Scott Zickery. Uh, he wrote a book called The Twilight Zone Companion, and this is an excerpt out of his book. The plot concerned a violent neurotic who kills an elderly Jew and then is acquitted by residents of the small town in which he lives. U.S. Steel, the sponsor, demanded changes in the script. The town was moved from an unspecified area to New England. The murdered Jew was changed to an unnamed foreigner. Bottles of Coca-Cola were removed from the set and the word, quote, Lynch, stricken from the script, both having been determined too Southern in their connotation. Characters were made to say, quote, this is a strange little town or this is a perverse town. So no one would identify with it. Finally, they wanted to change the vicious neurotic killer into just, quote, a good, decent American boy momentarily gone wrong. Sterling was left feeling like he was, quote, 
striking out at a social evil with a feather duster. And that's like where his mindset was at the time he wanted to delve into more deeper uh, moral stories. So that's what he was going for. But of course, the temperature of the time wouldn't allow it. So a later script for another uh, television show called Playhouse 90, also based on the Till story, this time retelling it in a Western setting was altered as well. According to Serling, they chopped it up like a room full of butchers at work on a steer. And years later, he would say that from experience, I can tell you that drama, at least in television, must walk tiptoe and in agony, lest it offend some serial buyer from a given state below the Mason-Dixon. Imagine that. Knowing this bit of backstory, though, Mm -hmm. does help to explain some of the storytelling that took place in the Twilight Zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He learned his lesson and he wrote around it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. in more creative ways. And he was probably uniquely qualified because of his childhood to do that. Absolutely. And you and it's funny you say that because you know his his political leanings were liberal. I think they the research I was reading, they described him as a Kennedy Democrat. Okay. And his moral convictions influenced the tales that he wanted to tell and how he wanted to tell them. But as you mentioned, overt or direct stories of social criticism risked raising problems with the sponsors and the network censors. This was a major, major motivation for the creation of the Twilight Zone. Allegories, science fiction, and unusual premises not only allow complicated moral and political stories to be distilled to a potent purity, but they could liberate Serling from some of the limitations of drama on commercial television. Yeah. Quote, a Martian can say things that a Republican or Democrat can't. That is true. So that is wrote- true. He wrote a teleplay in 1958 called The Time Element, and he had trouble shopping it around, but CBS purchased it from him, and he was hoping to produce it as a pilot of a weekly anthology series. And The Time Element marked his first entry into the field of science fiction. And the premise goes, a man visits a psychoanalyst and tells him about a reoccurring dream where he goes back in time to 1941 and tries to warn people about Pearl Harbor before it happens. But unfortunately, even though CBS purchased it, they didn't air it immediately, and it sat on the shelf for a little while until it was produced by the Westinghouse Desilu Playhouse. Desilu Playhouse, of course, was the production company owned by Lucille Ball and her husband, Desi Arnaz. Yep. Gave us Star Trek. Sure did. And... The time element aired uh, November 24th, 1958. So that set the tone and put um, the idea out there that, yes, I can do this and this is what I want to do. So he proposed to CBS, let me go ahead and do a weekly analogy show based on something like this. So CBS was like hemming and hawing, but finally they said, okay, here, here's, you can do it, go ahead. Then they were hoping to capitalize on his high-toned reputation, this is how it was put in research, and on the growing appeal like of books like Ray Bradbury's The Martian Chronicles and Richard Matheson's The Shrinking Man, and on such similarly cerebral science fiction movies as The Day the Earth Stood Still from 1951 and Forbidden Planet, 1956. Now, that's a movie. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> 
So the first episode premiered on October 2nd, 1959, which is 54 years ago this week. That first episode right. met rave reviews. Wait, did you say 59? 54. 50, 1954? Oh, I'm saying the year it premiered. Oh, 1959. That's a little more than 54 years. 64. 64. It was... It would 64. Be six, it's yeah. 64. <laughs> yeah. Listening friends, ignore my maths. It's bad. 64 years ago this week, the first episode premiered. <laughs> yes. Thank goodness you're not an accountant. <laughs> 14 years almost. Um, <laughs> quote, Twilight Zone is about the only show on the air that I actually look forward to seeing. It's the one series that I will let interfere with other plans, said Terry Turner for the Chicago Daily News. Other critics agreed. Daily Variety ranked it with, quote, the best that has ever been accomplished in a half hour film television. And the New York Herald Tribune found the show to be, quote, certainly the best and most original anthology series of the year. And this was off the first episode now. Wow. Despite this, by its third episode, the future was not certain. CBS was looking for a 21 or 22 rating for that time slot. By the third episode, the show was getting a 16.3. But by November, maybe a month or so later, it started to be, it started to beat competing shows in the same time slot on ABC and NBC. So it, it picked up steam and it kept chugging for another five years. Out of that five years, there were 156 episodes and Serling wrote or co-wrote 92 of them. That's a lot of work. Yeah. And I believe if I read the research right, he did the opening narration all the way through the third season. Um, he started getting less involved with it from the fourth season on. So go figure. But anybody who's familiar with the show, you know about the themes generally based off of science fiction, paranormal Sometimes horror, sometimes fantasy, sometimes just weird stuff. Mostly enjoyable. And just doing this research, I me mean, personally, just doing this research made me want to go back and find it somewhere and just binge it all weekend long. That's what I want to do. So it was. It had been some years, but they still considered it a post-war era. So a lot of the themes and a lot of the shows had to do with liberal post-war themes, um, including, you know, racism, uh, and again, it was about things you couldn't speak directly about, but you had to indirectly address them. Mm -hmm. And prejudice, Sterling said, was, quote, the singular evil of our time and the one from which all other evils grow and multiply. I can agree with that mm -hmm. statement. And I can I, definitely agree with that. I like the fact that, and this was stuff I, I didn't know, that he was just that kind of a deeper person. Like, yeah. he's like, I want to use television as a way to showcase thoughtful, deep entertainment without having to slap a commercial up for soap powder. Yeah, I, I can appreciate that. And he did. Like I say, he did a hell of a job with it. So I'm going to touch on just a couple, a handful of episodes here and there. 
one of the more memorable ones. And I had, were you, are you used to watch Twilight Zone, didn't you? Yeah. You remember the episode, The Eye of the Beholder? I mean, I don't know the titles of each episode. But <laughs> it was the one where they show the woman in the hospital and her face is all wrapped up. Right. And they're yeah, yeah, doing yeah. the plastic surgery to make yeah, her look yeah, yeah. like everyone else. And then they take the bandages off and she just looks like us. And then, yes. And all the rest of them look like half melted pigs. Pig people. Yeah. <laughs> that was that was one of my favorites. I remember, yeah, like incredibly I, thought provoking. It really was like peer pressure, the pressure of you know fitting in of, of assimilation, things like that. And I was like, this is wild. And it was like it was it was so funny at the end when they unwrapped your face and they realized the surgery didn't work, and they were like, oh my god, <laughs> you're hideous. <laughs> like one of the female nurses just about faded. <laughs> yeah, she was like, yeah. oh my god. I'm like, yo, this is hilarious. Yeah, that's one of the one of the best ones. It's, well, I mean, that's why we're talking about it now. <laughs> it really is. Um, another one was called the Rip Van Winkle Caper. And sometimes I'm like you, the ones that I'm not familiar with, I don't remember the titles. But the premise was a scientist and his criminal cohort steal a fortune in gold bars. And then to escape, enter a series of hidden chambers design, designed to keep them in a state of suspended animation for 100 years. When they do emerge after a century of sleep, they eagerly grab their stash gold, only to discover that the metal, now industrially produced, has virtually no value. <laughs> <laughs> I got to yeah. find that one, man. <laughs> like, damn it. Mm-hmm. And this is definitely in one of my, my top 10 episodes. Time Enough at Last. I think this is a lot of people's favorite. Um, the guy that works in the bank that doesn't like people. And he goes in the bank vault at lunch to read his books. And then the nuclear bomb drops. And he comes out. And he's like the only person left. He's like, no more people. <laughs> and then he hits the library. And he's like, it's just me and all the books. And this is the actual quote from the show. And the best thing, the very best thing of all is there's time now. There's all the time I need and all the time I want. And then his big old Coke bottle glasses fall off his face and hit the ground and break. And he's like, that's not fair. He can't even see without him. I'm like, <laughs> he's the only dude left with a yeah. library full of books and nobody to bother him. And he can't even see to read. Mm. I used to uh, harass, well, not really harass, but I would frequently go to The Walking Dead to propose the plot point of they get a new survivor that wears glasses, but his prescription is steadily getting worse. So every time they go out and they kill zombies, they're like taking the glasses so he can like eventually see. And when they finally find the glasses with the correct prescription, it's from, you know, like the, you know, like. The grandma glasses from like 1970 <laughs> or something, and they're Those, the only ones that, yeah, they're the only ones that work. And he, but he doesn't care at this point because everything's been blurry for so long. He's just those, happy. <laughs> it's those big ones with the lenses that cover half your face and the temples, or like at the bottom of the frame. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and they're powder blue. <laughs> I I just always felt like that would be like a good like side story plot that's while silly totally accurate of what would happen if something like that were real 
Yeah. Like, as much as I love The Walking Dead, yeah, some of it was kind of like, they kind of skipped past those those practical things. Like, yeah. what happens, what you know, happens or, if? Or some teenager that has braces. Yeah. You don't keep them shits on forever? I don't think so. You know, the whole time a survivor comes, you know, a new survivor joins the group and that teenager's like, were you a dentist? It's, it's hard enough for the orthodontist to get them things off. I know. Yeah. Much less some random stranger trying to pry that off your teeth. Right? It's those practical things that always got me. I'm like, how do they manage these things? Hmm. Uh, another popular episode was called The Monsters Are Due on Maple Street. I like this one, too, uh, where the residents of Maple Street convince themselves that space aliens masquerading as human beings have been hiding among them in their tree-lined little world as a first step towards global rule. And a lot Holy of people... Sorry, go ahead. We're living with people that believe this <laughs> shit right freaking now. Are they aliens or are they lizard people? I mean, just swap <laughs> out aliens with lizard people. You're right. And, and right. there are literally people right now that are living that life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. At the uh. time, a lot of people um, thought it was an indictment of McCarthyism and the Red Scare where, you know, they were hauling random people in, in celebrities and well-known people to testify in court as to whether or not they were communists. Right. Blah, blah, blah. But a lot of people also consider that more more of a an allegory toward Nazism, which makes more sense to me, because you really didn't even in those times you really didn't know who among you was a Nazi or was watching you, and in a split second could you know snitch on you and your life would be over. Who knew? Who knew? So that yeah. that explanation makes more sense to me than. The Red Scare does, but what? And I it know? just uncoincidentally turned out to be uh, telling the future as well. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Other episodes include uh, "To Serve Man," which is like my literally favorite episode of all time. Your man's is at the end telling them it's a cookbook. <laughs> it's a cookbook. <laughs> Oh, and then you have an episode called People Are Like All Over, where an astronaut, an astronaut crash lands on Mars, where uh, he engages the locals who seem to be nice, and they lock him up in a zoo as a specimen of an inferior species. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. That's funny. Um, the first season won Serling an unprecedented fourth Emmy Award. You know, after the ones he had won before he had done the show. Right. A Producers Guild Award for Sterling's creative partner, Buck Hotton. A Directors Guild Award and the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation. And Hugo Awards are like sci-fi awards. Yeah. So that's a big deal for a show for the first season, especially back then. It was a big deal. Many actors that became famous down the road guest starred on episodes. A couple of them include... Charles Bronson, Carol Burnett, Robert Duvall, Ron Howard, a young Ron Howard, Leonard Nimoy, William Shatner, and George Takei, Dean Stockwell, Cloris Leachman, and Elizabeth Montgomery, who you later knew as Bewitched. 
So as the seasons went on, um, a lot of people, the consensus that the last two seasons suffered a bit in the quality department. As I mentioned earlier, Sterling got less and less involved with the show to the point where he would come in to town where they were uh, shooting the show and he would record all of his intros all at one time. Oh, wow. And then they chop him up for each show and he would just boogie out of town. So at, at that point, he had started getting tired because he was doing a lot. You know, as much work yeah. as he's putting in, writing shows, producing things of that nature, he was like, I, I got to give it up. But as it were, CBS was like, it's not doing the business that it used to. We got to get rid of it. So 1964 and went bye-bye. 1966, he sold his stake in the show back to CBS. A pity, considering all that money that show has made in syndication since. Yeah. <laughs> Ooh, boy. In 1970, he started hosting a show called The Night Gallery. Do you remember that? I do. Yeah. Um, which some calls, probably even him, a knockoff. He also did contribute scripts for it. But, you know, it wasn't nearly as possible as, as The Zone was. So, Yeah. Between 1968 and 69, even considering how uh, adverse he was to advertising messing up you know, quality entertainment, he ended up endorsing products. Things like <laughs> Crest Toothpaste, Auto Loans, Samsonite Luggage, Volkswagens. And he did several PSAs for organizations, including the Epilepsy Foundation of America and the Save the Children Foundation. He hosted a quiz show called Liars Club in 1969 and 1970. In 1975, he was set to host a variety show called Keep On Trucking and unfortunately passed away at the age of 50. Wow. Right? I don't know why I felt like he he died like when he was in the 70s or something. 50? Like we're 50. Back, right. But people <laughs> back then when they looked 50, they looked 70. Well, I mean, think about, let's see. It was all that you know, asbestos. <laughs> Let's do more maths. I think my maths would be better this time. He was born in 1924 and the zone premiered in 1959. So that made him 35. Yeah. Did he look 35 to you? No. He looked <laughs> older, 50. didn't he? Because <laughs> I mean, he got started in Hollywood early, but like you remember. How he looked, we were just talking about how he looked in the opening narration. He looks like an older, he holds himself like an older man. Yeah. Well, I'm so like, I'm the same age that Wilford Brimley was in the movie Cocoon, and he looked like he was 80. Diabetes. Right? Should have listened to him. Should have. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm not making fun. I'm sorry. I just like the way he says it. Everybody clowns him for that. Bless his heart. So... But it's kind of interesting that after all that time of him worrying about the essence of entertainment being watered down by, you know, networks selling themselves out. That's what he ended up doing at the, at the last few years of his life. That's just wild. It's how it always works. It really does. It really and then, does. of course, and it, were you going to touch on the, the Twilight Zone movie from, what was it, 82-ish? Why? Are you, are you in my notes? Are you in my notes? That's where really? I am. Oh, all right. Um, I figured based on the timeline that we had to be getting there, but I didn't know if you were just 
going to talk on his Twilight Zone or if you were going to go all the way up to today? Mm-hmm. 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 Yes, 1983. Saw the feature film Twilight Zone, the movie. Co-produced and co-directed by Steven Spielberg, who, as a matter of fact, began his career directing scripts for Night Gallery. Mm-hmm. I enjoy Twilight Zone. Matter of fact, I just watched it again a few months ago. Mm-hmm. And let me tell you, the story about the kid with the powers. It freaked me out then. It freaks me out now. Now? Especially when you see what he did to the girl that was always fussing at him. He literally took her whole mouth. Yeah. But that was good. That was good movie making. And of course, all four of the the stories that they had in the movie were updated versions of original Twilight Zone shows. And of course, the very Dan Aykroyd did the Shatner one, correct? On the plane? No, that was John McGow. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, I was close. They're both humans. Was it Trouble at 30,000 Feet? I can't remember the exact title. Something like that. Yeah, it was John Lithgow. He has a knack for for being incredibly anxious and pulling it off really well. Yeah, he's um, a really good actor. But Dan Aykroyd, he did the, like the 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 prologue and the epilogue. Okay. Because he was in the car with like who was it, Albert? Is it Albert Finney? He's like, you want to see something really scary? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. but that was a good movie. That still that still holds up to me. I'm just saying. yeah. Were Were you going to touch on? probably one of the biggest sort of tragedies or whatever mm-hmm, in Hollywood mm-hmm. history with that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. I'll, I will let you get to that. Twilight Zone, the movie directed by Steven Spielberg and co-directed by John Landis. Four segments in the very first story was called timeout. And it was a, what they call a partial reworking, but not necessarily a remake of an episode called back there. And the premise of timeout, there's a guy, it starts out with a guy in a bar fussing and moaning. And surprisingly, it's it's relevant to today right now. He's a bitter white man uh, in the bar being bitter about how everybody else has opportunities but him. Go figure. And he walks I mean, out. <laughs> that never happens. He walks out of the bar and ends up being, inhabiting the body of um, different minority, minorities. Um, first a Jewish person, then a black person, and then an East Asian, I believe, specifically a Vietnamese person. Um, so he can actually feel what it's like to be a person of color. Go figure. But during the the filming of this particular story, there was a horrible accident that involved the star of this segment, Vic Moreau, and two of the younger co-stars. There were two uh, Vietnamese children that were extras. Part of the story involved a helicopter uh, needing to land and the helicopter malfunction and unfortunately hit Moreau and two of the children and killed them. Horrible stuff. Spielberg and Landis and everybody else involved were eventually sued. And this led to some serious overhauling of child work laws because the children were on the set very late at night and had already worked way over the time that they should have been. So there was a big, huge deal about um, that. Obviously, it should have been. And not only were there changes to the child labor laws, there were also changes to um, 
movie set safety, things of that nature. A lot of things were more well regulated after that. But it was a it was a huge story when it happened, and it's hard to believe. No, I, I take it back. I don't even know why I said that. I was going to say it's hard to believe something like that happening on a movie set, but we just had something like that happen on a movie set, unfortunately. So, yeah. but yeah, that's um, for the story behind the movie. So that's one of the movies that they talk about when they say certain movies in Hollywood are quote unquote cursed. They talk about movies that have a lot that happen either on set or with the actors behind the scenes. And that's one of the ones that they mentioned. So, mm-hmm. But it was a very, very sad story. So very sad. And Vic, Vic Moreau, just as an aside, happens to be the father of actress Jennifer Jason Lee. Hmm. But there's that story. But aside from that tragedy, um, it is a good, it still holds up. It's a good movie. It's a good movie to me. So the show itself has had three additional revivals. The first one from 1985 to 1989, the second from 2002 to 2003, just a year, and most recently two seasons between 2019 and 2020, and that was co-developed by Jordan Peele. You know that fella from Kim. He's he's an (laughs) alumnus of the show. He is. He's he's friend in our head. (laughs) Yeah. So, one of the all-time iconic shows and now I'll, I'll be the first one to say along with millions of other people it's a hell of a show it's a hell of yeah. a show. entertainment weekly just this past april ranked their top 10 episodes number 10 to serve man that's my favorite uh number nine was shadow play i'm not familiar with that one number eight will the real martian please stand up and again that was one of those episodes where Somebody in the crowd isn't who they say they are. Number seven, Eye of the Beholder. We were just talking about that a minute ago. Number six, It's a Good Life. Number five, The Invaders. That was the episode where the little tiny spaceman landed in the woman's barn. <laughs> that was funny. Number four, And When the Sky Was Opened. Um, again, I when I was doing my research, I read the summaries of each one of the episodes, and it like it more and more it was pushing me like you have to sit down the rest of the weekend and watch nothing but Twilight Zone. Number three, oh here's the title, Nightmare at 20,000 feet. Number two, the monsters are due on Maple Street and number one, time enough at last. So I think that's a fair, a fair lineup. But you get 20 people who are fans of the show and they'll have 20 different lists. So go figure. Yeah. Yeah. Did you have one off the top of your head that you can think of? Yeah, it was it was the the one we discussed where they the eye, take her bandages off. The uh, eye of the beholder. Eye of the beholder. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a really good one. So. That one gets me. I remember watching that for the first time. Um, I I would obviously I was a teenager and I was I had stayed out the night over at a friend's house and we were you know watching TV at one in the morning and the Twilight Zone was on, and you know. Being the same age I am, you know that TV was a little different then. So you kind of, <laughs> even if you had cable, you were still kind of stuck because that didn't mean there was anything on because a lot of uh, stations shut off at midnight. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the Twilight Zone came on and we watched it. And that was the episode that was on. And 
both of us were hadn't seen it or anything, and we were both just like, "Oh, whoa!" Why? <laughs> because they they shot it so clever that you don't ever see the faces of anybody. Yeah. yeah. Until the end. So clever. So clever. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of got me thinking though, when people just this morning, as I was driving to work, they were talking about, I don't know who it was. Someone did a list of the top 20 television shows of all time. Now that I think about it, they should have had the twilight zone in that top 20 and they did not. They, they probably had like half of the, half of the original shows from HBO up there. There was a large portion of HBO shows on there. Sopranos, Mad Men was actually number one. Really? Yeah. What um, list was this? It was like top. Actually, I think it was top 50 TV shows, but they only read the top 20. Mad Men? Yeah. I'll admit I was a Mad Men fan and I, I watched it like through the fourth season, I think, but I fell off of it. Maybe I yeah. need to go back and re-examine because it was a good show, but number one. Well, the, I Ooh. I got irritated with the list and thought the people that put it together were probably drinking that box <laughs> wine because Breaking Bad was 16th. What? Exactly. Come on. Breaking Bad is a top five show of all time. 16? Yeah. I enjoyed that. I that was that was impressive. Uh Walter White was an anti-hero for the ages. <laughs> yeah. It was a tremendous show. <laughs> Everybody knows it. It's very, very good people. <laughs> that pizza on the roof, one of the all-time great scenes. He did not inflate the amount of money that he had in that storage unit. I feel like I feel like now I have to go find a list of, of like the top shows. And dedicate yeah. myself from now to the end of the year, binge watching all of them, even if I've already seen them. Seen them. Mm-hmm. Because I only watched The Sopranos like maybe five or six years ago. I didn't watch it when it was originally on the air. Yeah, I didn't either. I didn't have well, I didn't have HBO, so that made it very difficult to watch it at the time. They um I didn't have it either, but they would re-air them on some cable channel. And it was a day I had off during the week and I would watch it in the mornings on a cable channel. So I kind of got into it and then I fell off again and I didn't end up watching it all the way through till, like I said, about five, six years ago. And I was impressed because, uh, your man's was an ass and severely emotionally damaged. Yeah. I have so. a feeling that that particular life can do that to you. Severely damage you. <laughs> well, I mean, consider his mother like, Whoa, she was a piece of work. <laughs> Ooh, I'm like, did he get into this so he could peel, so he could kill people by proxy instead of his mother? <laughs> Heather's Heather's dad loves Sopranos, and this is the only show that I know that he was sort of uh, like this about. If you went over there on a Sunday night when Sopranos was airing, you either had to leave before it came on, or just understand that. 758 he was going to his room and shutting the door and did not want to be bothered <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yep wait a minute this this, this so-called list did you hear Battlestar Galactic up there anywhere no yes it was not in the top 20 <sighs> either Battlestar Galactic of course the reimaged is the better version but... well I mean obviously no it was not the... in the top 20 either that's I imagine it might have been in the top 
I would hope so. Maybe we're just partial, though. But mm-hmm. I mean, it is an excellent show. It is. So what if it's a soap opera in space? So what? It's well done. I don't care. Yeah. I still remember. The second was it the second episode. What was it? Eleven 30? minutes. Eleven minutes. Thirty was yeah. it? Thirty-one minutes or eleven minutes? Yeah, I, th- I think it was thirty-one minutes. But yeah, it was had- still. Yeah, that was either the first episode after the miniseries or the second one right after the miniseries. It was the second right after the two-part miniseries. That is a phenomenal episode. Oh, my gosh. Even when I watch it now, I'm like, I'm I'm filled with so much tension. Like, I'm like, that's crazy. Like, they have to be on guard and jump every 31 minutes. I'm like, that is wild. It's 50,000 human beings left. And they are running for their lives across the solar system. And you have to to save, you know, 49,000 people. You have to do what they had to do to that. Yeah. You know, one, you know talk about your impossible situation. Mm-mm. And they had to make it. Mm-hmm. And, and that, then, was just, that was the first of many. Yeah. <laughs> and then um, now, of course, I'm not thinking of their name, but the president, Rosalind. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the actress that uh, played her, you know, in real life is super, super pro-choice. But, you know, there's that episode where mm-hmm. the doctor was performing abortions and mm-hmm. she had to, you know, put a ban on it. And the mm-hmm. actress that played her is like, once again, she's like, that's a very difficult situation. But when you're talking, there's less than 50,000 of your people all together left. She's like, it's a choice that has to be made. Like it or not. Do? Exactly. She's like, we and have. To- yeah. I is Mary McDonald, by the way. Thank you. I love her. And I love this role. Like all of the main roles in this show are like ridiculously well done. But I liked her because she had between her and Captain Adama, the moral issues they would run into were so profound and like they worked it out like you think real people would actually work it out like they had to be pragmatic but still think about trying to retain these people's humanity is wild it's wild listening friends if you've never seen it shame on you go find it right now yes just remember that while it is technically sci-fi taking place in space it's really crap that was happening in 2004 in the united states of america and five and six and seven it's it's commentary on the war and against terror, really. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Beautifully done. Beautifully yeah, done. Yeah. So but once again, we went off the rails. We did, but, but I have to. T- I have to. I have to get this in. The episode where they were on was a New Earth. Is that what they called it? Where they had finally found a place to go, but it was a horrible little planet, and the Cylons had caught up with them, and Adama uh, came up with the escape plan. Yeah, that was that's not New Earth. That was New Caprica, I believe. New Caprica. Yeah. And they had they jumped the ship right right there into oh the episode is awesome. <laughs> it is. And I always love that episode. But I watched this YouTube channel called Space Doc, which is a really good channel. And they talk about that particular episode of Battlestar Galactica. Mm-hmm. And the guy is like, they screwed up. They they did what they did with the wrong ship. They should have transferred Adama's command to the Pegasus because that was the newer, more advanced ship that could build ships. Fighters, like, 
if they just would have done the same thing, had it be the Galactica, and then just renamed the Pegasus Galactica, like they would have been better off militarily speaking going forward from the rest of the show because they would have had a 10-year-old ship and not a 60-year-old ship, which I understand, but it's still an excellent episode. You know what? I'm thinking about that, and I, I feel like there was a particular reason why they used the Pegasus. I think because Galactic was old, and it probably wouldn't have been able to make the jump like that. Yeah. I feel but, like there was a reason why they did it. Now I have to go watch it again. All yeah, right, it's yeah. on the list. Anyway, Space, friends. Space Doc's a good channel, and it just gives you something for thought. But yeah, no, that yeah, is an excellent episode, and mm -hmm. just the way they went through... I love the realism in how by the time you get to the end of the show, the Galactica was about to fall apart. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Cause yep. in the show, it starts out at that point that the Galactica, well, it was, it, it, the show starts at its retirement ceremony. It, it was, was becoming antique. a museum Yep, yep. <laughs> because it was the last one that old left. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they literally sat the shit down and it never flew again. And yeah, and that was the Galactica was really a character in that show. It really was. And I appreciated that, you know, a lot of times in sci-fi, you always want to give whatever the, you know, the show ship or whatever, it's the newest, it's the best. And that's not what they did in Galactica. Even in the original one, the Galactica was a more modern ship of the fleet. And in this one, they made it old and i appreciated that and it had yeah. all of the issues of being old but it tied into why it was the surviving ship absolutely and i, I love that that one fact that you learned the very beginning of the show that's what saved them that right there yep. awesome yep. um listening friends I I think you're catching on in the fact that we'll probably do an episode on this show at some point <laughs> Yes. We have As a matter of fact, we're ending the show and we're going to record it right now. No. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, we're actually going to uh, we're actually going to wrap it up here. So thanks yeah. for tuning in, guys, to our historical pop culture episode. Um, you know, we, we mix it up as we go along. We're we're evolving, so you'll probably see more of these these types down the road. But thanks for tuning in. So yes. you want to take us out? Sure. Hey, if you guys like what we're doing and you'd love to help us out. Go to buymeacoffee.com backslash hyperfocus pods. And with that, we will catch you on the next one. Bye. And now, folks, it's time to say goodnight. We sincerely appreciate your patronage and hope we've succeeded in bringing you an enjoyable evening of entertainment. Please drive home carefully and come back again soon. Good night. <laughs>